The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Morning. So last week we started going through the book of Genesis with the teen group. And I'd have to apologize to the teens in advance because we'll be slightly deviating from the lesson last week. Uh, We're not going to be continuing on to the next part. Uh, Last week, I only somewhat touched on the importance of taking Genesis as literal history and an actual account of what happened in the past. And the reason why I didn't go too in-depth with them was because I had already kind of done lessons on that when I was substituting for Tabor. And I was basically just planning on kind of reviewing that little by little as we went through the study. But I don't remember exactly the last time the whole church kind of looked at Genesis and understood why is it important that we take this as it's written. The book of Genesis was written by Moses to the Israelites while he was in the wilderness. And there's probably a few different reasons for that. One of them is to let Israel know why is Israel special to God? Why does he take such a keen interest in them over other people? Another reason would be to give an account of the history of the world. Uh, Where did mankind come from? How did we end up where we are today? Why are there so many people groups? Where did they come from? Why are there so many different ideas about the gods and the different religions? Thirdly, Genesis was to teach Israel the character of God and his nature. Who is he and what's he like? We need to remember that the older pagans, the uh, Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Mesopotamians, they all had their own origin stories. They had their own gods and their ideas of where their gods came from. We read Mesopotamian texts like the Numa Elish and the Atreus Epic. The Egyptians also had their origin story of found in the Memphis and Hermopolis text. Egyptians taught that the first god, Adam, not Adam, but Atum, (laughs) A-T-U-M, also sometimes referred to as Temu, evolved out of the dirt of the earth. He created himself from the dirt of the earth, and after doing so, he continued to make air and moisture from breathing out of his mouth. He then had two children who he lost in the, as they wandered through the darkness. And so Atum, or Adam, sent his eye to go look for them, and that would be where they get the idea of the sun. It's Adam's eye looking for his children in the darkness. And their children continue to have more and more gods, and so on and so forth. But the book in Genesis portrays God very differently than the gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. God is uncreated according to the Israelites. He wasn't made out of dirt. He wasn't made out of the chaos of heavenly clouds. He wasn't brought up out of the waters from violent air, the water shaking the waters and creating violence, as some of the Canaanites and Mesopotamians believed. God is uncreated. Isaiah 45.5 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, and none will come after me. And that's very different from all the other religions of their day. 
also, God did not create the earth for himself. He did not create the earth for his own habitation, which is what many of the Mesopotamians believed about their gods. They created the earth for their own pleasure and their luxury, and man was just kind of an afterthought. Man was there to serve them and give labor to them, to irrigate their fields and take care of them. That's not the God portrayed in the book of Genesis. The God of Genesis is very different from them. God created the earth for man's habitation, and he blessed them and told them to fill the earth, which is also something very different from the pagans. They were irritated when mankind started spreading out all over the earth. They didn't like it that earth was being filled to the brim with humans. And in some Mesopotamian legends, they also had an origin, uh, a story about a global flood. And they said the gods destroyed humans with the global flood because they didn't like all the noise they were making. <laughs> Too much noise, so they killed all the people. But God, he's not upset when people populate the earth. He wasn't upset when man started spreading out over the earth. That's what he told them to do. He blessed them to do it. And so you see a very different character of who God is. And so one of, I think one of the reasons why God gives us a creation account of what he did and how he did it was so we, the Israelites wouldn't apply and attribute pagan origin stories to their God. And they wouldn't understand how different God is. So what does the, uh, the book of Genesis actually record? What took place? When we read Genesis plainly, it makes it clear that the heavens and the earth and everything in them were created in six days, about 6,000 years ago, after which the fall into sin took place. Cain killed Abel. More wickedness grew throughout the earth, and eventually the earth became so wicked and so perverse that God decided to destroy all flesh under the whole heaven in a global catastrophic flood. In God's grace, he spared Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, along with two representatives of every kind of animal. Not every species, but every kind. That would be more like a family group. Two representatives from every kind. After the flood, humanity began to repopulate and refused to subdue the earth as God commanded them to do. Instead, they gathered together and built a tower to heaven, or they attempted to anyway. <laughs> I don't think they understood how high high heaven actually was. God judged them by confusing their languages and forced them to spread out over the earth. Their dispersion and the people groups they became are recorded in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We then come to Abram, later named Abraham, in the land of Ur after this dispersion took place at the Tower of Babel. What Genesis records is actual history. It's not in the language of poetry or metaphor or an analogy. Moses very clearly writes in the language of narrative. You find words like, this person did this, and then this happened, and then this person said this, and this person reacted this way, and then this happened, and then this happened. You find all these details in the genealogies of where did people go after Tower of Babel? What people groups did they become? You find all these details about who people were and what they did and how long they lived. That's not poetry. It's not an analogy. That's narrative. It's also not mythological narrative. We also see, by interpreting Scripture with Scripture, you can see that the Bible takes Genesis literally in many, many places. It's actually one of the most quoted from books in the whole Bible by other people and other characters in the Bible. 
Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days shalt thou labor and do thy work. But the seventh day is, a, is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do not, not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy maidservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is in thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the, the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You can see very clearly there, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. It means days literally. Days are not meant to be understood as millions of years or vast periods of time. Jesus also took Genesis literally. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? He said Adam and Eve were made at the beginning. He doesn't say God started everything at the beginning and then, like what, I think it's nine billion years later the earth was made, and then a few million years ago humans were made. He doesn't say at the beginning and then billions of years later he made humans. Adam and Eve were made at the beginning of the creation. We also see in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, Peter warns us that people in the last days would come and scoff at the account of Genesis. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they, are willingly, they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. And we can go on with many different scriptures of people in the Bible took Genesis literally. <clears throat> you also have people today like Dr. James Barr. He's a professor of Hebrew at Oxford University, and he's not a biblical creationist. He does not accept the account of Genesis, so he's not trying to defend anything. And yet he says this, so far, so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe, that is, they don't deny, that the writer of Genesis 1-11 through 11 intended to convey their re there's the ideas that A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same days as our 24-hour periods we now experience. B, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the later stages of biblical history. And C, Noah's flood was understood to be, a worldwide, to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life except for those on the ark. You cannot get millions of years or the theory of evolution by simply faithfully interpreting the scriptures. So why is, all, why is there all this disagreement? If the scriptures are so clear... Why do people try and reinterpret Genesis? <clears throat> well, one, many Christians, even theologians who are very good in many other areas, they, they're very good uh, students of God's word in other areas of theology, but they succumb to intimidation by secular scientists. They say they compromise scripture by using eisegesis, 
of the Genesis account. And let me explain what I mean by that. You'll notice I specifically said secular scientists. That's because, by God's grace, he's blessed us with many scientists today who are very well studied, they have their PhDs, and they affirm the Genesis accounts, and they've come up with a flood of arguments, pun intended, of, that validates the Genesis account and the global flood, and how the global flood can account for the ge geological phenomenon that we see today, and the rock layers, and the fossils. I also said they use an eisegesis of the Genesis account. <coughs> Eisegesis, let me explain this first. You probably may have heard of an exegesis or an exegetical approach to Scripture. And what that means is essentially when an interpreter of Scripture tries to understand the original meaning of the author, he figures out who the author is, what context is he writing in, when did he write it, why did he write it, and what genre did he write it. Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it an apocalyptic? What's the genre of his writing? In other words, exegesis is trying to understand the meaning of the scriptures by figuring out what the author's original intended meaning was. The opposite of exegesis is called an eisegesis. And if I can just paraphrase the definition I found. In an eisegetical approach to scripture, the interpreter ignores and overrules the author's original meaning by imposing their own presuppositions, agendas, or biases onto the text, making the scripture mean something which the author never intended to convey. This is why there's so much confusion over Genesis. It's not because people are faithfully interpreting scripture that they come to these disagreements. It's not because they're using exegesis and trying to understand what did Moses mean when he wrote this. When he wrote this. You cannot get Darwinian evolution or millions of years out of scripture by allowing God's word to shape your understanding of the world's history. The reason there is so much skepticism about what Moses wrote is because people impose their own agenda and their own biases onto the biblical text. Rather than letting God tell them how he created the earth, they reinterpret his account and try and tell him how he did it. In fact, the, the reinterpretations of Genesis is something Martin Luther actually commented on in his day, except he had a little bit of the opposite problem. You see, today, we try and reinterpret Genesis to fit millions of years into the scriptures. Martin Luther had the opposite problem. There are people trying to say, God didn't create everything in six days. He created everything in an instant, or maybe just one day. That was an interpretation that St. Augustine proposed, Augustine of Hippo. And that interpretation continued on for many years by, I wouldn't say too many people, but a good amount. Martin Luther's response to this was this. When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days, and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. <laughs> in other words, don't be wise in your own eyes. Secondly, why do people compromise Genesis? I think it's because they don't understand the actual nature of this debate. What is the actual nature of the disagreement? This origins debate is not a creation versus science debate. 
People make arguments like science says the universe is billions of years old, or the evidence speaks for itself, and we evolved from apes. No, it doesn't. That's a fallacy. Uh, the fallacy in the study of logic is an error in reasoning. Or, if, if I can put it my own way, it's bad arguments that people find convincing. That's what a fallacy is, a bad argument that you find convincing and you shouldn't. When people say the science says the universe is billion years old or the evidence speaks for itself, that's called the fallacy of reification. Reification is when you treat an abstract concept as if it were a physical or living thing. So when you say science says, science doesn't say anything. Science is a concept. It's a conceptual tool that people use and people say things. Fallible people. Fallible people who abuse this method and misapply the method because they don't acknowledge its limitations. Knowledge does, uh, science does not lead to knowledge of all things. It leads to knowledge of many things. It's a very good tool, but it cannot lead to knowledge of all things. But what is science? And this is very important to understand the nature of the origins debate and how God created everything. In its original meaning, science just meant knowledge, or knowledge which is acquired. Didn't really have any other connotations in that, or definitions. In modern times, we refer to science as a method of acquiring knowledge about the world we live in. And there are actually not one, but two types of sciences. There are two ways of acquiring knowledge about the world you're in. The first way is called operational science. This is normally what we refer to as science. We just short, shorthandedly say science, and what we mean is operational science. This is science or knowledge which is acquired through observation. We acquire knowledge through seeing, through tasting, smelling, hearing and through performing demonstrable, repeatable, and testable experiments in the present. This kind of science leads to the invention of cars, computers, phones, airplanes, that sort of thing. But what about historical events? Can operational science give us knowledge about past events? Can you observe a past event? Can you see it or smell it or hear it? Can you demonstrate and repeat it? No. Operational science cannot give you knowledge of past events. And so that's one of the limitations of op uh, operational or observable science. In order to acquire knowledge of past events, you need what's called historical science, or, or origin science, as it's sometimes called. And here's a definition of historical science. Historical science is an attempt to discover truth by examining reliable eyewitness testimonies, if they're available, and circumstantial evidence, such as pottery, fossils, and canyons, because the past cannot be observed directly, assumptions greatly affect how these scientists interpret what they see. This is essentially what a crime scene investigator does. He does historical science. Uh, let's say someone gets murdered in their home, and the investors come on the scene, and they see the door's been busted in, there's a little bit of blood on the wall, there's signs that the victim had a car, but they don't see a car anywhere. And as soon as they walk through the door, they start doing something. They start looking at the evidence, and they start imagining different stories that could account for why things are the way they are. But there's a problem. How do they know that their stories are correct? What they imagined happened in the past is actually true. Well, the best way to validate 
your stories about what happened in the past is through a testimony. Someone who was actually there to observe what happened. That's why when you're trying to convict someone of murder, an eyewitness testimony is a very, very strong evidence. This is the nature of the origins debate. It's not a science versus, versus religion issue. It's not a creation versus science issue. It's an issue of biblical authority and biblical inerrancy. The Bible says there was a global flood 4,000 years ago that can account for the present geological phenomena that we see, the rock layers, the fossils, everything that we see, a lot of the major grand canyons we see. So that's what God's testimony is. But in the late 1700s, a man named James Hutton theorized the Earth's geology could be accounted for through slow, gradual processes over millions of years. And in 1830, Charles Lyell promoted, the, promoted his idea by writing a book called The Principles of Geology. And that's the book Charles Darwin read on his voyage on the Beagle. And the idea that the Earth is millions of years old and geology evolved through slow natural processes, that became a launching pad for Darwin's theory of biological evolution over long periods of time. But were James Hutton and Charles Lyell there to see the Earth forming over millions of years? And does their interpretation of the evidence give a consistent account of what we observe? And the answer to that is no. They weren't there, and when you really look at their arguments, they don't really hold up to what we see. In fact, even modern evolutionists don't really accept the idea that geology, the rock layers that we see can be accounted for over slow natural processes. Most of them have abandoned that idea in favor of the idea that lots of local floods and earthquakes over millions of years form the geology of the Earth. The issue is man's assumptions about the past versus God's testimony about the past. While discussing the difference between operational science and historical science, Ken Ham framed the issue this way. After explaining these two types of science, people usually begin to recognize the potential problems with the statement, evolution is science, but the Bible is religion. Molecules demand evolution is not proven by op operational science. Instead, it is a belief about the past based on anti-biblical assumptions. The Bible, in contrast, is the eyewitness testimony of the Creator, who tells us what happened to produce the earth, the different kinds of life, the fossils, the rock layers, and indeed the whole universe. The Bible gives us the true big picture starting assumptions for, the origins, for origin science. Thus, creationists and evolutionists develop totally different reconstructions of history, but they accept and use the same methods of research in both origin and operation science. The different conclusions about origins arise from different starting assumptions, not the research methods themselves. And then he finishes saying, the next time someone uses the word science in relation to the creation-evolution controversy, ask them first to define what they mean by science. Only then can you begin to have a fruitful discussion about origins. So does God's testimony give a consistent account of what we see in the in present day? God's testimony is that there was a global flood that destroyed the earth, and that would probably account for why we see billions of dead things buried by water all over the earth. I think that's good reason. 
That also explained why we find 60-foot-tall brachiosauruses weighing over 127,000 pounds rapidly buried by water. I don't know how you do that through slow natural processes. How do you bury a 60-foot-tall animal weighing over 100,000 pounds in water? And also, how do you do that consistently? We find multiple fossils of these dinosaurs. We also ex this would also explain C14. Carbon-14 is a radioactive isotope that decays into nitrogen over time. And it is physically impossible for C14 to last more than one million years. It can't happen. In fact, Dr. Jason Lyle di actually did the mathematical equations on this, and he found that if the whole Earth and everything in it was made out of carbon-14, the whole Earth would have decayed into nitrogen in one million years. There wouldn't be a single atom of it left, or at least nothing detectable. That would explain why we find C14 in dinosaur bones, probably because they're not millions of years old. Explains why we find soft bone marrow in, their, uh, in the bones, why we find blood cells, which can't last that long. But the evolutionists will say, well, maybe the C14 in the dinosaur bones, that came through contamination. It was added later. There's some other source putting the C14 in the bones because it's open and exposed to the environment. But we also find C14 in diamonds which are pretty much the hardest material you can think of. There's no getting in or out of diamonds. And we find C14 in them, which indicates these diamonds cannot be billions of years old, as evolutionists claim. But if they're under a million years old, like the Bible claims, then it fits well with the biblical account. <coughs> and there are many, many different confirmations we can provide that the Earth is not that old. We can also point to the magnetic field of the Earth. Eventually, the Earth's magnetic field is winding down. It's getting weaker, which means if you go back in time, it was stronger. If you go back, I think it, they said 600,000 years, maybe it was 60,000. The Earth's magnetic field would have been so strong it would have ripped your atoms apart. It's not suitable for life. The furthest you can go back with the magnetic field and still have it be reasonable for life is only 30,000 years. So it can't be billions of years old. And if you have any questions about the oranges debate, what about you know, certain kinds of fossils, or what about the way certain canyons are formed, you can go to Answers in Genesis or Creation Today, Creation Ministries International, Institute for Creation Research. They have thousands of articles answering any question you can possibly have. So we need to stop compromising what God clearly says about the history of the world. There's no reason to, and we have every reason not to. We don't need to worry about science contradicting the Bible. There's no reason to compromise or accommodate evolution theory. Neither cosmic evolution or geologic evolution or biological evolution. There's no reason to compromise. In fact, many of the fathers of modern science were all biblical creationists. Sir Isaac Newton, Galileo, Johannes Kelper, Robert Boyle, Antonio Snyder, and even Francis Bacon. I don't know if you remember who he is. Anyone remember Francis Bacon? Not even by the name? Francis Bacon is the inventor of the scientific method. The guy who actually invented the method for operational science believed all the accounts of Genesis. And it's no coincidence that sci the scientific revolution took place in Europe in a place and time where Christianity was the most widespread and its theology pretty well refined. 
because it's the Christian worldview that makes the prerequisites for science possible. Science cannot take place in a universe if the universe is not orderly, if it doesn't abide by consistent law-like principles. The scientific method does not work in a universe where there are many gods who are constantly interfering with nature. And there's also no reason to assume the universe is orderly in a random chance universe produced by the Big Bang. The Bible says God made the universe by the power of his word, and God's word never changes. So I expect the laws of nature will never change. The same word that made the earth is the same word that made the heavens. And so I assume the laws of nature here on earth are the same ones out there in the universe. I have a reason for why I believe that. Why does the evolution assume that? Why would he assume the nature, the way nature behaves on earth is the same way nature behaves out there in other galaxies or other parts of the universe? How does he know nature has always behaved the same way throughout all these billions of years? I mean, he already has to compromise at least one law of nature. The, law of th the first law of thermo thermodynamics. Thermo means heat, dynamics means the workings of, so the way it operates. So the operations of heat, or the workings of heat. The first law of thermodynamics says matter and energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be transformed from one form into another. And yet here we are, made of matter and energy. So how did we get here if the law of nature say we can't be created? The evolution is forced to concede that the first, at least the first law of thermodynamics came into existence after the origin, the origin of the universe. And if one law of nature came into existence after the beginning, why can't other laws of nature? And why can't they evolve over time? Why do, why do you assume that the law of gravity wasn't stronger in the past or weaker billions of years ago? How do you know it will always be the same in the future? How do you know the law of gravity won't weaken in the future? Now, he does assume that, but he doesn't have any good reason to. He assumes the law of gravity has always been the same and always will be the same, but he doesn't have any good reason for that. His reasons are arbitrary. The Christian worldview is what allows for the prerequisites of science to take place, a uniform nature that uniformity of nature that operates by consistent principles. And lastly, I would acknowledge the theological issues of trying to fit the Big Bang, millions of years, and biological evolution into the scriptures. Number one, it contradicts the Bible's teaching on death. When Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, he wasn't writing a science book. He was writing a doctrine of death. He was writing a history of death, an account of death. Where did death come from? Why is it here? Is death good, bad, or neutral? What is death? Charles Darwin gave us a doctrine of death that contradicts the Bible's doctrine of death. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the law sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Darwin said death is natural. It helps us progress. So maybe in that sense it's a good thing. At the very least, it's neutral. 
But death in the Bible is portrayed as punishment and a curse from God. And it's the result of sin. It is the consequence of being cut off from God because God is life and the giver of life. And to be separated from him is death. Death came into the world because a literal man named Adam literally ate a literal fruit and literally sinned and literally fell and literally passed death upon all literal men. Literally. (laughs) Because Adam's original sin was charged to the whole human race, death reigned over over all of Adam's children, even without the Mosaic law, to cause further transgression. This is also why a literal savior was needed. The Lord's atonement isn't just for your personal transgressions. It's to atone for the sin nature inside you, the corruption in you. If there was no literal Adam, then there was no literal fall. And there's no need for an atonement in that sense. Number two, it distorts the character of God. Psalms 19, verses 1 through 2 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. And Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. These verses tell us that God created the world. He created the world with certain characteristics, and in a certain way, to convey certain characteristics about himself, certain attributes about himself. So it's not just important that God created, it's important how he created. Is God a a deistic God that's impersonal from his creation? You just get the ball rolling and then step away and watch it roll? That's what the God of the Big Bang does. He's not personally involved in the act of creation. He just gets it started and then watch it, watches it go. That God is a God of randomness, chaos, and disorder. The God who used evolution is a God of bloodshed, suffering, and death. Those aren't the characteristics of God. And also look at Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 26 through 34. Jesus said, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much more than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Shall not, he, shall not he much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Jesus is saying, just look at the creation. And one of the things the creation teaches you is that God is good. He is good even to the lesser creatures. He has an affection for the lesser creatures. It's not the same affection for mankind. But there is a care for them. This is also why we can argue that animal abuse is wrong. Yes, it's okay to murder them. <laughs> Because they're not the image of God, and God has given us permission to eat them. But God does still have a certain affection for them as his creatures. So it's not right for us to unwarranted, without warrant, just cause violence to them, 
and inflict pain on them for no reason. Jesus also says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. God is good to the animals and the lesser creatures, and most certainly he will be good to those who are made in his image. And Jesus said, God is good even to the earth itself. You know, I often think of our solar system. Mercury has no atmosphere. It's right near the sun. In the day, it's extremely hot, and at night, it's extremely cold. It's not habitable for life. You look at Venus, and it has an atmosphere, but its atmosphere is full of sulfur. It has a runaway greenhouse gas effect. It's a hellish planet of fire. Then you look at Mars. It's a barren wasteland with no water. You look at Jupiter. There's no solid ground, and it's stormy. It's not habitable for life. No place for man to set his feet on. You look at Uranus. It's on its side. The axis is on its side, so there's no day and night there. You look at Pluto, and the sun is just this little speck. It only gets a very little amount of light. But then you come to a very peculiar planet in the solar system. It's called Earth. (laughs) And on this planet, it has an atmosphere, but it's just the right kind. This planet has water on it. This planet has life and beauty on it. The oceans are tamed. They're not like Titan, the Jupiter's moon Titan, where the water tears it apart. This water is tamed. The winds are tamed. The atmosphere is just the right temperature and the right conditions. And it's not a barren wasteland like Mars. It's filled with flowers and lilies that give it beauty and sweet fragrance. God has a special care for the earth that he doesn't have for the other worlds. Isaiah said he formed the earth to be inhabited. He doesn't say that about any other planet in the whole universe. What he says about the other planets and the other heavenly bodies is they were formed for two reasons. One, to proclaim his glory and his attributes, and two, to be as signs, markers of days and years and seasons. So out of all the millions of worlds in this universe, God has his affection on just one world. There's only one world where God made a creature in his image. There's only one world out of millions that God became a man and walked on it. There's only one world where God became a man and died on it. There's only one world where God will establish a kingdom where he will reign forever on it. So I hate to break it to you, but ETs aren't real. So you know. You can't say those things about um, the God of the Big Bang. He's not a God of order. He's not a God who's personally involved in the uh, act of creation. He stands back and he watches it. Let's randomness take over. He's not a God that's good to the earth or good to the creatures. He's a God that lets death and suffering reign over his creatures. In the fossil record, on animals that are supposedly millions of years old, we find cancer. We find them eating each other. We find thorns and thistles. That can't be before sin. What you attribute to God tells you about his character. And as I said at the beginning, one of the reasons God wrote the creation account is so Israel, Israel's, Israel, Israel's, they wouldn't attribute pagan origin stories to the true God. And that's exactly what you're doing when you attribute evolution to the true God. It's a pagan origin story that you're attributing to him, and it distorts his character. And I'll just quickly cover the last few reasons. Jesus said Adam was made at the beginning. Was he wrong? Was he accommodating ignorance? 
People say he was just accommodating their beliefs. But Jesus said he is the truth and is not in the truth's character to accommodate ignorance. And if he said it wrongly, knowing it was just pure wrong, then why should I trust him about anything else? Jesus said, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, why should you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If I tell you of the earth that's right in front of you, why would you believe of spiritual things you can't see? For it undermines the gospel, as I already discussed. If there's no original sin, there's no need for a savior. If death is not the consequence of sin, then there's no need for the savior to die. Five, it nullifies the authority of the scripture, which is really why this is such an important issue. The, re- the fact that the earth is 6,000 years old is not really inherently important in and of itself. If the earth is billions years old, that doesn't really matter. And no, it's not a salvation issue. You can believe in evolution and still be saved. And as I said, you can even be a good theologian in other areas. But when you try and compromise Genesis, you undermine biblical authority. If I can't reliably trust what I plainly read in Genesis, why should I reliably trust what I plainly read in Romans 1 about homosexuality? If I can overrule uh, Moses' original intent in Genesis... Why can't I overrule what Jesus said? Why can't I overrule what Paul said and impose my own suppositions and agendas on them? And six, it weakens the church. It causes confusion, uncertainty. And I think as we study the origins debate, you see how scripture affirms it. You see how very good creationists, scientists, geologists, astronomers, they give arguments that affirm the biblical accounts. It's very faith-affirming. And it strengthens your confidence in the scriptures. That's the nature of the debate, and that's why Genesis matters. And you're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.